Today's reading is Mark 5, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well, made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. So how do you define a sandwich artist? Here's one way. You are the face of a global brand. Your smile and warm, friendly greetings start every guest's experience. This winning attitude and ability to make delicious sandwiches quickly and efficiently will make you a key member of the team. You are the reason why customers keep coming back. As a sandwich artist, registered trademark, you will greet and serve guests, prepare food, maintain food safety and sanitation standards, and handle or process light paperwork. Exceptional customer service is a major component of this position. That's how Subway defines a sandwich artist. But friends, I submit to you this morning that Mark, the author of our gospel, is the true and original sandwich artist. Mark uses what's called a sandwich technique in composing his gospel to weave an incredible narrative where one story is embedded in the other. Mark is the master of the sandwich, and our passage this morning is his piece de resistance. Here's how N.T. Wright defines Mark's sandwich artistry. He says, the flavor of the outer story adds zest 
to the inner one. And the taste of the inner one is meant in turn to permeate the outer one. The outer story is about Jairus, one of the local synagogue presidents, and particularly his 12-year-old daughter. And the inner story is about a much older woman who for the same 12 years has suffered severe internal bleeding. Both stories are about fear and faith and the power of Jesus to take people from one to the other. Well, friends, this morning we are going together to collectively bite into this delicious sandwich that Mark has prepared for us. And primarily we're going to look at what this story has to teach us about faith. There are actually, you know, kind of seven things I think it has to teach us about faith. A biblical number. And, And my goal is not to say, hey, here's seven things to know about faith. You know, memorize them, write them all down. Some are pretty quick points. But, but, but I hope that at least one or two of them will spark something in your heart or your imagination and that God will, will, will use them to draw you closer to him in faith. And so before diving in, in, into the lessons in this passage about faith, though, I, I want to lift up just for a moment what Wright said about the relationship between faith and fear. You know, if we were to ask this question, well, what's the opposite of faith? Some people would say, well, doubt is the opposite of faith, or unbelief is the opposite of faith. And, and, and some people would say, well, maybe it's, it's apathy, or, or maybe it's indifference. Those are the opposite of faith. But for Mark, and Jesus in Mark, the opposite of faith is none of those things, but fear. Constantly throughout this gospel, faith is being contrasted with fear. The disciples are out in a boat, and you know, the wind storm comes up, and the wind and the waves are tossing it about, and Jesus stills the storm. And he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then just last week, we looked at the passage about the, you know, Gerasene demoniac who says, you know, my name is Legion. And the response to that miracle on behalf of the townspeople is fear. They're afraid of Jesus. And so they ask him to leave town. So fear wins the day, not faith. And so they ask Jesus to leave. And Jairus, in our passage this morning, he receives word that his daughter is dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And so it's worth pondering what is it that makes fear the opposite of of faith? What is it about it that makes it its faith's foil? And I think maybe one reason is that fear it places a limit upon God's power. Fear tells us that, that God can be trusted, but only to a point. There is a point at which, you know, we will find ourselves beyond hope or beyond help. A point at which we will be abandoned by God to a power that is even greater than him. And that power can be nature, that, that power can be physical or mental illness, that that power can be loss, you know, death, Grief. And so fear says that we can find ourselves in a place where God is not. But faith says that, that, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. All right, so having said all that, let, let's take our first bite into this delicious Markin sandwich. And the first lesson we see here about faith is that oftentimes faith is impelled by desperation. Faith often emerges from circumstances where where we reach the end of our ability to save ourselves. 
That's true of Jairus, and that's true of the woman with the hemorrhage. Both of them are in desperate circumstances. Jairus' daughter is extremely ill, ill to the point of death, and he knows that if there isn't some intervention, she's going to die. And as we've been terribly reminded of from the events of this past week with, with Kobe Bryant's death, but especially, especially those children and especially his daughter Gianna, there's nothing more terrible than the prospect of losing a child. That brings us to a desperate, a desperate place. There's no place I know that's as desperate as that. And so in life groups this past week, one of the things that Matt uh, challenged us to do, and, and this story is very rich for that, is to enter into the experience of, of one of the characters, whichever one of them maybe resonates with you, and enter into their experience and try to see this story through their eyes. And so, you know, I took up that challenge this week, and so now I'm going to share a story here of my own experience with this. Um, and I don't know if I've, t- I've told it before, but forgive me if I have. But when our son... Gregory was, was born, and, and he was born 17 weeks early, and so the first six weeks were, were really hellacious. They were, they were terrible, as, as he was on the precipice between life and death. And so one of the memories that's most seared in my brain from that time was, uh, and now, thankfully, it seems almost like a different life, or they seem very, very different, like, like so far in the past at this point, but um, it was the very first night, actually, that Amy and I slept, not at the hospital, but we slept at home. So Greg was in, sleeping in the hospital, we were sleeping at home, and that was a very painful day. And um, I think it was actually Halloween night, Halloween night of 2015. And so the kids went out trick-or-treating, they were pretty little, so didn't stay out too late, and our bigger two boys, and so uh, put them to bed, and then I went back to the hospital um, to just spend some time with him there, and, uh, and, and, and he was in his isolate, so it's this, you know, plexiglass kind of container crib uh, thing, and, uh, and, you know, he has all these tubes and wires at this point. He's very frail, very, very tiny, very sickly, and, uh, and, and I just remember, you know, hugging this isolate. I couldn't touch him, so just putting my arms around this thing and hugging it and just weeping like a child and, and begging him, don't die while, while I'm gone tonight. Just please, you have to, you know, I mean, saying these things, don't die tonight while I'm gone. You have to, you have to make it through tonight. You know, begging like, like Jairus, that's how I could relate to him so well, begging like him on his hands and his knees before Jesus in just a place of utter desperation, desperate for an assurance, right, that, that your worst nightmare isn't going to become Reality. And then there's the desperation of the woman. And, and the picture that Mark paints of her, in two verses, it couldn't be more hopeless. And there was a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And actually, our translators are nice. They kind of make Mark's grammar a little better and, and put into complete sentences. But this is just one long run-on sentence in verses 25 through 27. And it's literally like this. He's just heaping up phrase after phrase. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and having suffered much under many physicians and having spent all she had and in no way having benefited, but rather having come to the worse. This woman is utterly hopeless. And her condition was not just a medical problem, which is bad enough, that would have been, been bad enough, but it also meant that she was ritually un, unclean, and so thus you're, you're, you're ostracized from the religious life of the community, probably the social life of the community. 
It meant that she was unable to have children, and and as such, if she had been married, it would have been grounds for divorce, and so if she was married, she had probably been divorced by her husband at this point. And so in in, in many ways, her condition with this discharge rendered her just as hopeless and unclean in the eyes of the people around her as the garrison demoniac in our passage last week. And all the wealth she had, she had spent on physicians who in the ancient world offered cures of dubious value, you know, think less actual medicine and more like, you know, these concoctions and witches' potions that you would grind up and and then have to, to force down your throat. They were so disgusting. And after all of these years and spending all that she had, she had not gotten any better, only worse. She had used all the humanly available resources and remedies, and when those didn't work, she was desperate for something, anything that could save her. And that's when she heard about Jesus. And the truth is, it's oftentimes from a place of utter desperation that we turn to him. We're out of options. We're out of hope. And so we get to that point of saying, I've tried everything else. What do I have to lose? Desperation can be the one thing that helps us get over our pride or over our shame. You know, pride in the case of Jairus, he was a somebody. He was the president of the synagogue. And at this point in Mark's gospel, it's clear that Jesus is no longer a welcome in the synagogue. So Jairus casts his pride aside, his position aside, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And we can think of shame in the case of this woman. Shame at being unclean, shame at her condition, shame at her lack of social status, shame at her poverty. In her desperation, she overcame her shame in order to sneak a touch of Jesus' garment. So that's the first lesson, that, that faith often emerges from a place of desperation. But, but the second one is that faith shows persistence in overcoming obstacles. There is an aspect of faith that does not take no for an answer. The woman had to work her way through the crowd in order to get to Jesus, a, a crowd where she knew that every person she touched, she would defile. And when she reached Jesus, she had to overcome whatever fear she might have had that her touch would contaminate him. And she had to overcome, you know, the hundred reasons she's probably thinking in her head why she shouldn't follow through, why she shouldn't do this, why it was stupid of her to even try. And there were plenty. You know, she's unclean. Jesus is holy. She's a woman. Jesus is a man. Jesus was in a hurry. He didn't need to be bothered at this point. All of these things were obstacles, excuses, rationalizations, justifications for her stopping and not doing what she did. However, faith doesn't let anything get in the way of reaching out to Jesus. And Jairus had his own obstacles to overcome. He had to overcome the devastating news that his daughter was dead and thus beyond saving. He had to overcome the the, the, the laughter, the incredulous, mocking laughter of the mourner. He had to overcome his own doubts as, as to whether there was anything more that could be done. One commentator said, faith steps forward in the midst of an intimidating crowd despite fear and trembling and acknowledges Jesus' power to heal. Faith goes forward in the face of mocking laughter and refuses to give in to fear and scorn. Right? That's an obstacle. People aren't going to understand. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to think that I'm stupid, and so I hold back. But faith steps forward even in the face of that. 
Now, the third lesson here is that faith is expressed in action. In the Gospels, faith isn't some abstract idea that lives in people's heads. You know how we tend to think of it, that faith is kind of a, a mental state or a mental condition. No, faith is something in the Bible that can be seen. It can be seen in, in, in friends digging through a roof to get their friend to Jesus' feet. It can be seen in, in Jairus' falling down and pleading. It can be feen, seen in the woman you know, straining through the crowd and reaching out to touch Jesus. Belief about Jesus, belief about ideas about who Jesus is, do not bring about healing, but faith in Jesus that expresses itself in action does. And so the, the, the issue then for us isn't, you know, what beliefs about Jesus do we hold, but how do those beliefs actually play themselves out in our lives? There's another life group challenge that we get each and every time you get together in a life group. If you're not in one, I encourage you one for the next time because the question that's always before us is what does God want to say to me through this passage and the second one what am I going to do about it that's the faith question the faith in action question you know how do we actually live and act differently because of who we believe Jesus is and what he has done and can do that's the third lesson. Faith is expressed in action. The fourth one, is, and this one is, is really important, is that faith gives us more than we could ever imagine, but it also, at the same time, it asks for, from us, it demands from us more than we think we're capable of giving. So faith gives us more than we can imagine, but it asks from us more than we think we're capable of giving. Think about both Jairus and, and the woman. Both of them got way more than what they were asking for. Jairus was asking for Jesus to heal his extremely sick daughter. And what did he get? He got a resurrection. And this woman, she, she wanted a touch and run miracle. You know, anonymous, slip in, slip out. And what did she get? She got just, not just a healing of, of her body, but, but, but the restoration of her place in the community. You know, she wanted to be healed as an anonymous woman, but instead she, she got called daughter. It's the only person who Jesus ever addresses in that way. And so while both Jairus and the woman got more than they asked for, faith also asked of them more than they thought they were capable of giving. This woman had to give a full account in front of everyone of what, what she had done and who she was. You know, she, who had hoped to escape any attention, becomes the center of attention before this watching crowd and fear and trembling. And so faith asked of her a full, public, and truthful witness. Faith asked her to step out of the crowd and step out of the shadows. Now faith asked of Jairus that just when he had received the most devastating news a parent could get, that he not fear, but keep on believing. That's what the Greek grammar says. You know, it says, don't be afraid, just believe. But really it means continue to believe. Keep on believing in spite of this news. And so faith asked him to go into his dead daughter's bedroom, not in mourning, but in hope. Faith demanded that he keep trusting Jesus, even when it seemed like Jesus had failed him. Right? Of all the people in this passage, it seems like Jesus has let Jairus down the most. If Jairus had come pleading, saying, come to my house, rush, my daughter is at the point of death. And so the clock is ticking. His daughter needs an immediate miracle or she's going to die. And Jesus stops. 
and he delays. And, and, and he has this conversation with a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years. Couldn't her healing have waited? Or couldn't Jesus just have let her, you know, kind of get healed and then slip away without a word like she wanted? And so faith demanded that he keep trusting Jesus, even when it seemed that Jesus had failed him, had let him down. And in this case, you know, Jesus was asking Jairus not so much to to have faith, but to almost let faith have him, to let faith carry him through from despair to hope. This is a hard lesson for us because some of us probably feel like we've been let down by God or we've been let down by Jesus before. There are prayers that have gone unanswered, losses that we cannot recover, deaths that have not been reversed. What does this passage say to those of us who have been there? Right, these words of Jesus, don't be afraid, keep on believing. One commentator said this passage does not offer an explanation why a loving God allows evil to continue to exist or why the inexplicable still occurs. However, it does affirm that God is on the side of those who suffer and are stricken by grief. The fifth lesson is that faith opens the door to the power of God. It it creates a channel through which God's power can flow. Faith transfers, in in these cases, divine power to the completely powerless. Faith saves, which means that it it, it rescues you. Rescues you, you know? Salvation in the Bible, it gets translated different ways. Your faith has made you well. It has healed you. But in Scripture, salvation means all sorts of things besides, you know, you're saved from your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. Salvation is always about God's rescue from an otherwise hopeless situation, about God's power to pull you out of a pit that you could not escape from yourself. And so salvation is spiritual, it's physical, it's social, it even has political dimensions. Faith can be bold, it can be halting, it can be mixed with fear and doubt. All that matters is where your faith is directed, that it's to Jesus and to God So what saved this little girl and this woman was a faith that was directed towards Jesus. The sixth lesson, faith is available to anyone. Faith is no respecter of persons. Jairus and the woman, Mark, with this sandwich technique, technique, he highlights that they could not be more different. He was a he, she was a she. In that culture, he, he mattered more than her. He had a title and a name. She had neither. He had a daughter, which means that he had a wife and a family, and she was alone and childless. He was rich, and we can tell that because when Jesus goes to his house, you know, the daughter is in her own room, and if you were a poor peasant, your house only had one room. So, so he was rich. He had a nice house. And if you were a poor peasant, you know, you wouldn't have those things. And so he was rich, and this woman was poor. She had spent all that she had had on doctors and cures that only made her worse. You know, he had direct access to Jesus. He could just walk right up to him. But she had to sneak through the crowd. He was ritually pure and she was impure. His crisis was acute and her problem was chronic. And so with this sandwich technique, Mark has given us a study in contrast. Jairus and this woman could not be more different. And yet saving faith is available to both of them. In fact, Jesus prioritizes the case of this woman. Jesus heals her first and makes Jairus wait. And this tells us that faith is just as much for, you know, the, the so-called nobodies as it is for the somebodies. 
And that's one of the things that the elites have always hated about Christianity and that we Christians tend to downplay or forget. But the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel is that saving faith is available to everyone no matter who you are. And the last lesson, probably the most important lesson of all about faith, is that imperfect faith is enough when it's directed toward Jesus. You know, lots of commentaries when they're talking about this woman getting healed, they note the imperfection of her faith, her, her belief in Jesus' power to heal her. It's, you know, it's quasi-magical. Well, you might even call it, you know, superstitious. It's like some kind of power is transferring from one person to the other. And so what we might look down our noses at as, as unsophisticated, you know, superstitious, primitive faith, Jesus calls that saving faith. And of all the people in the crowd, I mean, the disciples are incredulous when Jesus says, who touched me? They're like, well, everyone is touching you. It's a crowd of people, but of all those people, and you have to imagine that they had all sorts of things that they needed help with. Only she is healed because she has faith. St. Augustine said that, that flesh presses, but faith touches. And what matters most is practical faith, not you know, conceptually correct theology There's lots of people out there in the world with good theology and no faith. And as a pastor, we might call that an occupational hazard. You can have all kinds of good theology and no faith at all. So what this passage teaches us then is to really humble us. That what you need, you know, these are not bad things, but you, you don't need great theological acumen or sophisticated intellectual understanding of the person and work of Jesus to access his transforming, healing, saving power. Her faith is enough. And it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. It's not how hard you believe, it's what you believe in. You know how much faith is enough? I I love this illustration from Tim Keller. He says, imagine there's three people running through the woods and they're being chased by, you know, a grizzly bear. And if it gets them, it's gonna kill them. And so uh, they come to this short cliff overlooking a frozen lake. And the cliff is steep enough that, uh, you know, the bear is not going to run down it. But, you know, if you jump on it, the question is, you know, not will you survive the fall, but is the ice strong enough to hold you? And so the three people are running towards that. And they all have a decision whether they're going to jump or not. And so the first person runs up there and thinks, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, the ice won't hold me, and they jump. Second person goes, well, it's probably a 50-50 proposition. I know the bear is going to kill me, and it's been pretty cold. The ice looks pretty firm. I mean, what have I got to lose? Jumps. Third person thinks, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm basically certain this ice is going to hold. I know that it's been below freezing enough time. I'm pretty sure the ice is like two to three inches thick. That's, that's enough to hold a car, let alone someone like me. And so, yeah, of course. Then, So with confidence, they jump. And they all land. And the ice holds. And so the question then is, which person is the most saved in that scenario? So the last lesson is this. How much faith do you need in Jesus to be saved? Well, just enough to jump. Just enough to jump. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.